Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 95, Pandemic 1918. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss a 1918 epidemic that's gone down in history as the Spanish flu. A more accurate name for this disease outbreak might be the Boston flu, because our city is where the influenza virus that had already been circulating around the world in early 1918 mutated and first turned truly deadly. The first cases of this new and deadly disease were reported in South Boston 100 years ago this week. Soon, Boston would suffer nearly a thousand deaths per week as the disease peaked. Before it was over, up to 20% of the world's population would be infected. With up to 100 million people killed, the 1918 flu was the most deadly disease in human history. But before we talk about the 1918 flu outbreak, it's time to take a look at this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. For our featured historic site this week, we have one of the last remaining places you can visit near downtown Boston that's directly related to the 1918 flu epidemic. The Chelsea Naval Hospital Historic District is located nearly under the Tobin Bridge in the Admiral's Hill section of Chelsea. When the hospital first opened its doors in January of 1836, it was one of the first medical facilities authorized by Congress specifically for treating U.S. Navy personnel. The first building was built out of granite blocks and could treat about 100 patients. Over time, the hospital campus grew. A Marine Hospital building was added in 1857, and the Commandant's quarters were built in 1865. The original building was expanded between 1865 and 1903, while more buildings were built on the site at the same time. In 1910, two powder magazines were converted into barracks for hospital personnel. Eventually, the hospital occupied about 88 acres of waterfront along the Mystic River. Along with its famous role in the 1918 flu outbreak, Chelsea Naval Hospital treated U.S. Navy and Marine Corps personnel during the Civil War, Spanish-American War, and both World Wars. It also treated both civilian and military personnel who were injured in the apocalyptic 1908 Chelsea Fire. Famous patients included both John Quincy Adams, who was treated after his presidency, and John Fitzgerald Kennedy, who was treated before his. The Naval Hospital closed in 1974, and the remaining buildings were redeveloped into condos in the early 1980s. Today, you can walk down Commandant's Way in Chelsea to see the remaining hospital building, Commandant's Quarters, and powder magazines. Nearly directly across the street is Mary O'Malley Park, with a close-up view of the busy Mystic River Basin. Take the 111 bus to the corner of Beacon Street and Broadway, or take the Beacon Street exit off of Route 1 as soon as you cross the Tobin Bridge. And for our upcoming event this week, we have a talk coming up this Friday, August 31st, at the Massachusetts Historical Society titled, Masters of the Market, Ship Captaincy in the Colonial British Atlantic. In a way, you could consider this lecture a prequel to our recent conversation with Stephen Ujafusa in episode 89. That episode was all about the development of clipper ships and increasing global trade in the mid-19th century, while our featured event this week takes place just about a century before that. Here's how the MHS website describes it. 
During the colonial period, captains acted as powerful auxiliaries for their vessel owners in markets far from the owner's direct oversight. This talk explores why the economic services ship captains provided transformed as the Atlantic trading economy became more complex, capital-intensive, and informed in the 18th century. The talk will be given by Hannah Tucker of UVA on Friday at noon. Bring a brown bag lunch to enjoy during the discussion. The event's free, and no registration is required. And now, it's time for this week's main topic. In August 1918, Boston was a city on a wartime footing. It had been about a year and a half since the U.S. entered World War I, and our factories were manufacturing arms, soldiers were streaming in on trains to board ships to Europe, and the Navy yards in Charlestown and South Boston overflowed with ships and sailors. Commonwealth Pier on the South Boston waterfront was an important naval facility, serving as the embarkation point for both sailors and soldiers who were bound for the front lines. A huge rail yard fanned out just across the street, while rail sidings allowed trainloads of troops and supplies to be rolled right onto the pier. Throughout the war years, tens of thousands of sailors passed through Boston. At any one time, Thousands of sailors could be waiting for orders while living on board receiving ships at Commonwealth Pier. A receiving ship was an old hulk, anything from a modern ocean liner to an elegant antique clipper, anything that floated but was no longer seaworthy that could be converted into a giant floating barracks. Large ocean liners would be used as is, while old sailing ships would have their masts and rigging removed and a large wooden superstructure added to house more men. The U.S. Navy certainly had no shortage of aging ships that could be pressed into service. Even the USS Constitution served as a receiving ship from 1881 until restoration efforts began in 1906. For every military in history, disease has rivaled combat in its deadliness. With so many sailors packed cheek by jowl in overflowing barracks ships, it was unsurprising when two sailors reported to sickbay on August 27, 1918, complaining of flu-like symptoms, coughing, aches and pains, and a high fever. The next day, eight more reported. The day after that, 58 more. As they got sicker, the patients were moved from the temporary sickbay at Commonwealth Pier to the Chelsea Naval Hospital. Nobody knew it yet. But Boston had just become ground zero for the most deadly global pandemic the world has ever seen. This wasn't the first flu outbreak in human history, of course. It wasn't even the first time in 1918 that the U.S. military had to deal with a particularly virulent strain of flu. In January and February, a country doctor named Loring Minor, based in Haskell County, Kansas, noticed a sudden and dramatic increase in influenza cases. Haskell County was sparsely populated. It was the kind of place where dugout sod houses were still common in 1918. It had relied on the beef industry until some of the larger ranches went bankrupt. Now it was known for raising hogs. Out of a scattered population of just over 1,700, dozens were suddenly stricken with a serious respiratory flu. Somewhere in Haskell County, a strain of the swine flu had made the jump to infect humans. More concerning, it had mutated to be transmissible from human to human directly. 
By the time Dr. Minor was able to get an article published in a public health journal, it was April. In the meantime, Army recruits from Haskell County were reporting for duty at Camp Funston. The local paper named three recruits in the last two weeks of February, and it's likely that more followed the same path. It was the height of World War I, and Camp Funston was one of the U.S. Army's main recruit training stations. Before long, influenza was ravaging the densely populated Army posts, as colorfully described by Joseph E. Persico in a 1976 issue of American Heritage magazine. The previous March, a severe dust storm had obscured the sun at Fort Riley, Kansas. Some 9,000 tons of manure were burned every month at this prairie cavalry post, continuously mantling the area in a malodorous haze. The storm winds had whipped up a stinging blizzard of dust and smoke that sent soldiers stumbling, coughing, and choking to the refuge of their barracks. Two days after the storm had ceased, an army cook named Albert Gitchell reported to the post hospital, complaining of fever, sore throat, and various aches and pains. Minutes later, another soldier checked in with the same symptoms. The count had jumped to 107 similarly afflicted patients by midday, and by week's end, 522. Before the sickness ran its course five weeks later, 1,127 men had been stricken. The base surgeon diagnosed the sickness as influenza. In May of 1918, the Army's 89th and 92nd Divisions finished their training at Fort Riley and sailed for France. Soon after the 92nd Division disembarked at Brest and Saint-Nazaire, French soldiers began to fall ill with influenza. British soldiers in France carried the disease back to England. Influenza spread through the Royal Navy like flames on an oil slick. Over 10,000 British sailors were laid low, confining the fleet to port. The disease rolled across France and into Germany, where eventually 160,000 Berliners came down with the flu. It erupted halfway around the world, sweeping across China, India, and most of Asia. Whether carried from Europe or appearing independently, nobody knew. A 2004 article in the Journal of Translational Medicine pegs that outbreak in Haskell County, Kansas, as the origin point of the virulent 1918 flu. But that is just one link in a century-long chain of controversial claims about where the virus first emerged. Most of the world refers to the 1918 epidemic as the Spanish flu, because the first time civilians heard about the disease was in news reports about a new form of flu that was sweeping through Spain. Of course, by the time it got to Spain, people in Germany, France, England, and the United States were already suffering from the disease. But those countries were all at war, and wartime censors prevented news reporting on a disease that was affecting military readiness. In neutral Spain, journalists were free to report on the disease, and the term Spanish flu was coined. France was briefly blamed, as well, since troops returning to the U.S. from the trenches of France were soon spreading the disease through military bases around the country. And France didn't have a good reputation, as syphilis was, of course, known as the French disease. Later research makes it clear that the disease was actually spreading in the opposite direction, and earlier than people originally thought. It was coming from Camp Funston to the front lines in France, and then back again to the United States, so France could not be the origin point for this disease. Scrutiny has often fallen on China, 
where rural areas have given rise to new strains of virulent flu as recently as 2009. However, until recently, no link could have been made between a disease outbreak in China and the global population movements that allowed the 1918 flu to spread so aggressively. One researcher believes he may have found that link. Historian Mark Humphreys of Canada's Memorial University of Newfoundland believes that the 1918 flu started as a mysterious respiratory illness in northern China in November of 1917. And then, the British Empire's use of Chinese laborers in the European theater of war and their movement across Canada spread this mystery disease around the world. A 2014 National Geographic article reviews its research. Humphreys reports that an outbreak of respiratory infections, which at the time were dubbed an endemic winter sickness by local health officials, in villages along China's Great Wall. The illness spread 300 miles in six weeks' time in late 1917. At first thought to be pneumonic plague, the disease killed at a far lower rate than is typical for that disease. Humphreys discovered that a British legation official in China wrote that the disease was actually influenza in a 1918 report. Humphreys made the findings in searches of Canadian and British historical archives that contained the wartime records of the Chinese Labor Corps and the British legation in Beijing. At the time of the outbreak, British and French officials were forming the Chinese Labor Corps, which eventually shipped some 94,000 laborers from northern China to southern England and France during the war. The idea was to free up soldiers to head to the front at a time when they were desperate for manpower, Humphreys says. Shipping the laborers around Africa was too time-consuming and tied up too much shipping, so British officials turned to shipping the laborers to Vancouver on the Canadian West Coast and sending them by train to Halifax on the East Coast, from which they could be sent to Europe. So desperate was the need for labor that on March 2, 1918, a ship loaded with 1,899 Chinese Labor Corps men left the Chinese port of Wee Highway for Vancouver despite, quote-unquote, plague, stopping the recruiting of workers there. The Chinese laborers arrived in southern England by January 1918 and were sent to France, where the Chinese hospital at Noyer-sur-Mer recorded hundreds suffered from respiratory illness. From there, the already familiar pattern kicked in. The virus spread among the British, French, and American soldiers. It spread across no man's land to the Germans. And it traveled back across the Atlantic to North America, where it began to spread among the barracks ships at Commonwealth Pier in Boston. While in its earlier incarnations the disease had been debilitating, spread particularly aggressively, and caused some deaths, when it returned to Boston, it entered a new phase. The flu virus mutates quickly, which is why creating an effective seasonal flu vaccine is so difficult every year. The disease mutates more rapidly than vaccines can be developed and produced. In Boston, the so-called Spanish flu mutated into a form that started spreading even more rapidly, and it began killing in large numbers, so that it would eventually become the most deadly disease in human history. With all the Army and Navy facilities in and around Boston, the disease moved fast. From those first cases at Commonwealth Pier, 15 were quickly transferred to Chelsea Naval Hospital. 48 hours later, three of the medical officers who treated them also fell ill. Flu arrived at Camp Devens, another of the Army's main training posts outside Boston, 
on September 8th. In less than two weeks, thousands of soldiers and recruits were sick. Colonel Victor Vaughn, a respected epidemiologist, visited Fort Devens early in the outbreak and wrote, Every bed is full, yet others crowd in. The faces wear a bluish cast. A cough brings up the blood-stained sputum. In the morning, the dead bodies are stacked about the morgue like cordwood. On September 29th, an army doctor at the fort wrote to a friend, also a physician, in a letter that has become famous as a record of the disease. This epidemic started about four weeks ago and has developed so rapidly that the camp is demoralized and all ordinary work is held up till it has passed. All assemblages of soldiers are taboo. These men start with what appears to be an attack of the grip, or influenza, and when brought to the hospital, they very rapidly developed the most viscous type of pneumonia that has ever been seen. Two hours after admission, they have the mahogany spots over the cheekbones, and a few hours later, you can begin to see the cyanosis extending from their ears and spreading all over their face until it's hard to distinguish the colored men from the white. It's only a matter of a few hours then until death comes, and it is simply a struggle for air until they suffocate. It is horrible. One can stand to see one, two, or twenty men die. But to see these poor devils dropping like flies sort of gets on your nerves. We have been averaging about a hundred deaths per day and still keeping it up. There is no doubt in my mind that there is a new mixed infection here, but what, I don't know. My total time is taken up hunting rawls, rawls dry or moist, sibilant or crepitant, or any other of the hundred things that one may find in the chest. They all mean but one thing here pneumonia. And that means, in about all cases, death. I don't know what will happen to me at the end of this. We have lost an outrageous number of nurses and doctors, and the little town of Ayr is a sight. It takes special trains to carry away the dead. For several days, there were no coffins, and the bodies piled up something fierce. We used to go down to the morgue, which is just back of my ward, and look at the boys laid out in long rows. It beats any sight they ever had in France after a battle. An extra-long barracks has been vacated for the use of the morgue, and it would make any man sit up and take notice to walk down the long lines of dead soldiers, all dressed up and laid out in double rows. That letter begins to hint at the grim reality of the 1918 flu. Today we treat the flu or at least a rough collection of symptoms that we offhandedly refer to as the flu, fairly casually. A few days of a nasty fever, body aches, headaches, maybe a stuffy nose or a cough, then we're back to normal. A few deaths are caused each year by the flu, but those are restricted to infants, the elderly, and people with compromised immune systems. The 1918 flu was a whole different story. Not only was it more deadly than any flu in recent memory, it also disproportionately affected people who were young and healthy. People we would consider most resistant to a seasonal flu today were the most likely to die in 1918. The Spanish flu turned an otherwise healthy patient's immune system against them. The virus would stimulate white blood cell production to fight the disease, 
and then the white blood cells would trigger the production of proteins called cytokines. The virus then caused the white blood cells to see the cytokines as an infection, triggering the production of more white blood cells, then more cytokines, until it became a self-reinforcing cycle called a cytokine storm. Patients with the strongest immune systems were felled quickest, as their immune systems attacked their bodies. White blood cells attacked the mucous membranes of the lungs and intestines, causing intense hemorrhaging. These patients could literally drown in their own blood, or they could develop deadly secondary infections like bacterial pneumonia. An article from Yankee Magazine attempts to categorize the ways a young, healthy patient would begin to experience flu symptoms, then rapidly slide into a decline toward death. Number 1. In the first group, the disease began mildly, and the patients felt as though they would be better in a couple of days. A day or two later, there was a rise in temperature, followed by the onset of pneumonia, then death. Number 2. In this group, the disease began somewhat severe. It was followed by pulmonary complications, then recovery. Number 3. The third type began as extremely severe. Breathing became difficult. Cyanosis set in. At Devon's, the lungs of 18-year-olds were filling with fluid. They were drowning. Their faces blew from lack of oxygen. In this type, death followed in 36 to 48 hours. When we get a headache and a stuffy nose and complain that we might be coming down with the flu, perhaps we'd do well to remember the patients of 1918 who, as a doctor recalled, died struggling to clear their airways of a blood-tinged froth that sometimes gushed from their nose and mouth. Even as it turned deadly, the flu outbreak at first seemed to be confined to the military bases surrounding Boston. Nine days after the first cases at Commonwealth Pier, the state health department was still optimistic enough to warn, unless precautions are taken, the disease in all probability will spread to the civilian population of the city. That was September 5th. Within days, the first epidemic was beginning to spread through the civilian population rapidly enough that emergency tent hospitals were called for. The first one of these opened on Quarry Hill in Brookline on September 9th, less than two weeks after the first documented infection. The National Guard had completed the work in a single day under the direction of Colonel William H. Brooks. Tent camps serve the dual purpose of relieving overcrowded hospitals and providing patients with fresh air, which was thought to reduce the rate of infection. The health department would later say, Boston has had the unenviable experience of being the first American city which was called on to deal with what proved to be a pandemic of influenza of unprecedented virulence. The first civilian death was reported in the Boston Globe on September 11, 1918. Catherine Callahan, a nurse, overtaxed by her work for our soldiers, died today. The story went on to note that her 19-year-old sister Mary was hospitalized for pneumonia, as was their mother. Soon after that story ran, Boston's public health commissioner was quoted as saying, I believe the plateau if not the peak of the contagion, has been reached. There is a chance that we shall continue at the same level until the first of the week, and then a steady downward tendency may be expected. Catherine Callahan was the first civilian casualty on September 11th. 
On September 14th, Boston's immigration station on Gallup's Island in Boston Harbor was opened as a quarantine hospital. Its 200 beds were almost immediately filled. By the 16th, 19 people had died. A week later, 334 were dead. Catherine Callahan's plight reveals one of the greatest challenges of the epidemic. The city and state were running low on medical personnel. Doctors and nurses had been called to serve in the Great War in France, and those who were left behind could not keep up with the ever-increasing number of patients. Governor McCall soon issued a proclamation asking every person in Massachusetts who had any medical training or experience to report for duty in fighting the disease. An article on the website Influenza Archive outlines how Boston attempted to counter this shortage of medical personnel. Physicians and nurses were being overworked, and hospitals were overflowing with desperate patients. 32 nurses from Brigham Hospital were out sick with influenza themselves, unable to care for patients. The homeopathic hospital refused admittance to some 400 influenza patients. Temporary emergency hospitals were being set up in and around Boston to relieve some of the pressure, but the lack of doctors and nurses meant that there were precious few to take care of patients. To help allocate precious resources in the most efficient manner, authorities established a hospital clearinghouse to keep track of daily hospital bed availability and distribute patients accordingly, and to handle appeals for nurses and doctors. They also established a relief station in East Boston that was continually staffed with physicians and nurses. They placed Boston's health department nurses under the supervision of Mary Beard and the Instructive District Nursing Association so that they could be assigned duties more efficiently. The Consumptives Hospital Department did the same with its nurses, as did the Baby Hygiene Association, the school committee, and area nursing schools. Many Boston and Cambridge teachers, released from their usual work due to the school closures and informed that they would be paid their regular salary if engaged in relief work, volunteered to aid the city's nurses in combating the epidemic. Yankee Magazine describes measures taken by the Commonwealth to try to fill the ranks of doctors and nurses. Though Lieutenant Governor Calvin Coolidge had wired Washington and received more than 1,000 additional nurses and some of the money he'd asked for, doctors and nurses were still sadly needed. All month long, the city newspapers ran front-page appeals for healthy men and women to volunteer for work as nurses, bandage sewers, ambulance drivers, laundresses, pharmacists, and messengers. Nurses would be paid $28 a week, nurses' aides $15, and if they came to the city from a distance, their transportation fees would be reimbursed. Henry Endicott, chairman of the State Committee on Public Safety and acting chairman of the Emergency Public Health Committee, encouraged people to step forward and show their patriotism. Meanwhile, life in Boston was becoming grim. One of the nurses who was mobilized to fight the flu recalled, One never-to-be-forgotten day at the height of the epidemic It seemed as if all the city was dying. In the homes, serious illness. On the streets, funeral processions. As children jumped rope in the streets, they sang a morbid new skipping song. I had a little bird and its name was Enza. I opened the window and influenza. With city officials finally taking the threat of flu seriously, all schools were ordered to close on September 24th. 
Slides and short films warning of the dangers of the flu were shown before features in Boston's movie theaters, until another round of restrictions was announced on September 28th. The City Emergency Health Committee on Thursday ordered closed from midnight Thursday until October 6th all theaters, motion picture houses, dance halls, and public halls of every description. All other meeting places not classed as essential also come under this edict. On October 4th, soda fountains, bowling alleys, and saloons were forced to shut down. That same day, churches and Sunday schools were ordered to shut their doors. Hotels and cabarets remained open, but with strict ordinances implementing fines for dancing, kissing, sharing cups or spoons, sneezing, coughing, or spitting in public. Residents were urged to only use the telephone in case of emergency, because over 850 operators were out of work with the flu. The Boston Street Railway had over 165 carmen out, and they were having trouble maintaining their usual schedules. On October 7th, businesses were ordered to stagger their opening and closing times to relieve rush hour crowding. Anything that could prevent people from packing together in close quarters and increasing transmission of the disease was fair game. Wakes were banned on September 27th, and funeral homes were prevented from bringing in extra chairs for a funeral, and yet another attempt to prevent large gatherings. At the same time, there weren't enough coffins and gravediggers for the sudden influx of bodies. Bodies of the indigent were taken to Mount Hope Cemetery, which bore the brunt of the pandemic's burial boom. After the fact, a report issued by the Boston Health Department acknowledged the grave state of the city. The most severe outbreak of influenza that has ever prevailed in Boston occurred during the last four months of 1918. During September and October, it constituted a veritable epidemic, causing sickness and suffering among a large part of the population of the city, and bringing death and misery into thousands of homes. Even as Boston teetered on the brink of collapse, and doctors, nurses, and public health workers tried to contain the spread of flu, there were researchers trying to put a stop to the epidemic. In his 1976 American Heritage article, Joseph Persico introduces us to one of the stranger attempts. On the parade ground at the Naval Prison on Boston Harbor's Deer Island, Dr. Joseph Goldberger, a public health physician, stood before a thousand deserters, insubordinates, brawlers, and other delinquent sailors. The doctor needed volunteers for an influenza experiment. In his book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, Bill Bryson picks up the narrative. The prisoners were promised pardons if they survived a battery of tests. These tests were rigorous, to say the least. First, the subjects were injected with infected lung tissue taken from the dead and then sprayed in the eyes, nose, and mouth with infectious aerosols. If they still failed to succumb, they had their throats swabbed with discharges taken from the sick and dying. If all else failed, they were required to sit open-mouthed while the gravely ill victim was helped to cough in their faces. Out of somewhat amazingly 300 men who volunteered, the doctors chose 62 for the tests. None contracted the flu. Not one. The only person who did grow ill was the ward doctor, who swiftly died. The probable explanation for this is that the epidemic had passed through the prison a few weeks earlier, and the volunteers, 
all of whom had survived that visitation, had a natural immunity. Writing in the Journal of Public Health Reports, Carol Byerly outlines how quickly the flu spread through the national network of army bases. Influenza reached all army training camps in a month, arriving September 8th at Camp Devens, September 13th at Camp Upton, September 21st at Camp Grant, September 26th at Camp Cody, and then on to the West Coast, arriving October 8th at Camp Fremont, California, and October 9th at Camp Lewis, Washington. With troops on the move across the country and around the world, the disease quickly spread. A ship from Boston carried influenza to the Philadelphia Navy Yard. The next day, two sailors there died. Soon, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and San Francisco with their large Navy facilities were particularly hard hit. Influenza would sweep from Nome, Alaska to Johannesburg, South Africa, and cause record death tolls across Europe and Asia. Even remote islands in the Pacific and tribes deep in the Amazon would not be spared. In the end, nothing doctors and researchers did could contain the virus. It would eventually run its course, subsiding naturally in the late fall and winter of 1918, ironically, the season when flu was normally most active. The peak of the epidemic struck in mid-October, but there were still later spikes. As long as the virus lingered in the population, anything that brought groups together could cause an increase in deaths, as the 1919 City Health Department report reveals. The disease gradually subsided, though it never died out. The celebration of the signing of the armistice brought great crowds into the city on November 10th and 11th. Evidently, this offered a great opportunity for the spread of the disease, as there followed a rapid increase in the number of cases, and later on, deaths. The disease again subsided for a time, but the crowds gathered for Christmas again caused a recrudescence of the disease, which has continued into the end of this year. In the five years from 1911 to 1915, Boston averaged 30 deaths per year from influenza. In 1917, 51 deaths were attributed to the disease. In 1918, the annual report of the City Health Department puts the official death toll from influenza at 4,023, with an additional 771 from pneumonia secondary to influenza. The Health Department recorded a total of 4,794 dead in Boston in 1918, which is almost certainly low due to the number of influenza deaths that happened before reporting was required, they were misreported, or where pneumonia was listed as the only cause. In the state of Massachusetts, estimates ranged from 23,000 to over 50,000 deaths related to the flu. About 675,000 people died of the flu in the United States, and worldwide estimates ranged from 50 million to over 100 million people dead. The disease may have infected 20% of the world's population and killed as many as 3 or 4% of the entire global population. It killed more people in a year than the HIV-AIDS epidemic has in 40, and more people than the Black Plague did in a century. Doctors today have a lot more knowledge about infectious disease and a lot more pharmaceutical weapons than doctors had in 1918. Starting in 1996, DNA was extracted from the lung tissue of Spanish flu victims, and by 2005, 
the complete genome was reconstructed. Physicians now know exactly what the mysterious virus was that swept around the world in 1918, a variant of the H1N1 swine flu. The CDC says that there is evidence that some residual immunity to the 1918 virus, or a similar virus, is present in at least a portion of the human population. Since contemporary H1N1 viruses circulate widely, and the current annual influenza vaccines contain an H1N1 component, a 1918-like H1N1 virus would not fit the current criteria for a new pandemic strain. Two types of antiviral drugs, flumidine and Tamiflu, have been shown to be effective against influenza viruses similar to the 1918 virus. So that must mean that we'd be okay if a similar outbreak happened today, right? Not so fast. Gerald T. Koish, Associate Dean of the BU School of Public Health, warns, Conditions are favorable for the emergence of a dangerous pandemic variant of the influenza virus, and preparedness to deal with such an event remains fragmented, underfunded, and weak. As we said at the top of the show, influenza mutates and adapts rapidly. While we have strains of H1N1 in every season's flu vaccine, that doesn't guarantee protection against a newly arisen strain. Peter Police chairman and a professor in the Department of Microbiology at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York, warns that each dose of flu vaccine is created using one chicken egg. If a new and deadly strain of flu were to require a new vaccine, it would take 3 million eggs per day to produce enough vaccine to treat the most vulnerable U.S. citizens within even three months of the beginning of the outbreak. That would push our nation's chickens to their limits. That's why people are justified in the stockpiling of vaccines, he says. We'll leave you with this happy thought from Dr. Tom Inglesby, director of the Bloomberg School's Center for Health Security. What I worry about is that there could be too many people for the system to care for at once. Very difficult choices would have to be made about how to distribute medicine and how to distribute ventilators because they are in limited supply. At the peak of the pandemic in the U.S., we'd have seven times more people in need of ventilation than we have ventilators, and seven times the number of people needing intensive care than we have intensive care beds. Now, before we start wrapping up, if you've been listening to the show for a while, or if you follow us on social media, you probably heard our calls asking folks to share their personal or family narratives with us. Our plan was to collect some of those first-hand accounts and share them during this episode. Well, that fell flat because we just didn't get any feedback. However, while we were at history camp last month, we met Lori Lynn Price. Lori Lynn is a genealogist and medical historian who spent years collecting personal narratives of the 1918 flu pandemic. And she was kind enough to agree to come on the show and share some of them with us. So right now I want to welcome Lori Lynn Price to the show. Lynn, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about how you first became interested in researching the 1918 flu, whether that was a professional interest, a personal interest, or how you got started in that direction? 
I think it was actually both a professional and a personal interest. I am a professional genealogical speaker, and I wanted to create talks and write articles. So in that sense, it was professional. But I'm also a social historian. I love to know what drives people and what people's lives were like. And since all of my ancestors lived or died, they actually all lived as far as I can tell, through the 1918 flu, I wanted to learn what it was like for them. And so I think that it, it, it's, a, it's a mixture of both. So how do you go about collecting stories like this? How long does it take to, to research something like this? Where do you look for uh, the sort of personal narratives that others wouldn't have heard? This is actually unique for me. This is the first time that I've tried to collect personal narratives in all of the, the talks that I've given. And I started out by reaching out to my friends who were genealogists on Facebook and said, I'm putting together this talk and I really want to know what your stories are. I want to tell your stories. And many of them replied back. Some of them referred me to, many of them referred me to blogs that they'd already written, but some of them sent me pictures and newspaper articles and anything that they'd collected because they wanted their their ancestor stories told. And as I've given this talk, that's what I'm finding is that people want their stories and their ancestor stories to be told. Whether they survived or not, they were affected in some way. And so they wanted, people were, once I reached out informally across Facebook, people were really happy to share. I've also done some research in the archives. I went to the New England Historic Genealogical Society and was looking basically through any any diaries that covered the period of 1918. And some of them, a lot of them didn't speak about it at all, or if they did, they just mentioned that the flu was in town, which is surprising because we think that it's such a big, you know, when we look at it today, it's such a big deal and so many people died and like life shut down, but not everyone felt that way, or at least if they felt that way, they didn't record it in their diaries. Yeah, I certainly wish that I had been more aware that the flu epi- the 1918 flu epidemic even happened at a time when my grandparents' generation was still around. You know, the last couple of members of my family from that generation are, are not in a mental state to always share stories like that anymore, and, and most are gone now. But I wish I had known to ask those questions while they were still alive. I wish I had too. I actually came across a story in my father's family of his grandmother that he was very close to. And of course, he knew her when she was old and he was a young boy and she had hearing aids and she had hearing problems. What he didn't know and what I found out just by reading one of the bi- a biography that her daughter had written is that she had lost her hearing as a young woman during the 1918 flu epidemic. She had gotten very sick and that was the con- she survived, but that was the consequence that she had for the rest of her life was a severe loss of hearing. Oh, interesting. So is there a story, just to kick us off, that you found particularly affecting or something that, that really tugged at your heartstrings? You know, I think it's a very simple story that one of my friends told me about her father. And his father died when he was only six. He died of the flu. And like many, many people during that time, he was farmed out to someone else. And so he was farmed out to an aunt and uncle, and he always felt like he was the extra. He felt like he was a burden. So if you can imagine, not only had he lost his father, I'm not sure what happened to his mother, but she either she wasn't around or she couldn't take care of him. So he lost both of his parents, and then he went to live with his aunt and uncle who should have loved him, but instead they just made him feel like he was a burden the entire time that he lived there. And she says, you know, this had an immeasurable impact on my father. And there were, given that the flu was most likely to kill people in their 20s and 30s. So mothers and fathers who had young children, there were thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of orphans who went through experiences similar to this poor little boy. Even if you didn't become orphaned, your family life could certainly change pretty drastically 
I know you mentioned stories of other folks who lost whole swaths of their families in very short periods of time. Yes, one of those was Marion Dakin. She was a, a young mother in her 30s, her young, uh, lower 30s. She had been married for about five years and was living in Danbury, Connecticut, and she had two children. She she'd actually had three children, but she'd already lost some one child completely unrelated to the flu. And her husband became sick at the end of November of 1918. And so her mother came down to help her care for her children and for her husband. And her mother also got sick as did her son. And within a five-day period, Marion lost her mother, her husband, and her son. And so she was left with just a two-year-old son and then her father, who had lost his wife, his son-in-law, and his grandson. And she didn't have – her granddaughter has researched a lot about Marion, and she wrote she just didn't have time to sit and mourn. She had to figure out how she was going to support herself and her child. And unlike many people, she had the advantage of having had education. She came from a more well-to-do family, so she'd already had some education. She knew what she could do, so she took her – her son and her father to Chicago where she took a class in nutrition. She took a a few courses in nutrition to finish her degree on education or education on nutrition. And her father came along first because he didn't, had also lost his wife. He didn't know what to do. So he came to take care of her son while she was in school. And within a few years, she ended up back in Connecticut at what would eventually become the university of Connecticut. And she was their head nutritionists for years and years um, she taught for 25 years and she wrote bulletins. I, I believe they were quarterly bulletins on food preparation with recipes and nutrition advice. And she also gave talks all over the states. And some people might look at this as a, as a really great opportunity for her. And perhaps it was, but it came at a really what a great cost. cost yeah. A huge cost of the loss of much of her family. You say in a five day period, her mother, husband, and one of her children. Yes. Yeah, that is quite a cost for a career. So along with genealogy, you also have a background as a medical historian. I know that one of the topics that came up a lot as I was researching the 1918 flu epidemic was the terrible toll it took on medical personnel, on the doctors and nurses, both civilian and military, who turned out to treat people who were affected by the flu. Have you discovered stories about the folks who were affected from the medical community? I have, and there were there are several. I'll start with the medical tech, but I can also talk about nurses and doctors. And his name was Floyd West, and he was at Fort Devens, which is ground zero for the the flu outbreak in September. And we're it's not clear what he did there. We don't have a record of of like his day to day what he did, but we know that he saw many many people die. He knew that he might come down with it at any time, and he saw all kinds of horrors. Watching someone die from usually from pneumonia, the really severe pneumonia that often followed the flu, was a horrible thing to watch. It was a horrible thing to experience. And he but he made it through at some point, probably after the main outbreak, so probably sometime in the spring, he came down with the flu as well. And he survived, but it was severe enough and the his lungs were affected enough that the medical doctors said that he could no longer um, finish his duties as a medical tech, and so he was discharged honorably in April of 1919. But I really love what his grandson wrote. He wrote that some soldiers in World War One saw hell on a battlefield. Others, such as my grandfather, saw another sort of hell in hospital wards full of comrades wrecked with the Spanish influenza. It's great to have that perspective recorded. Mo- most of what makes it into the history books about the 1918 flu outbreak is from the perspective of commanding officers, of regimental surgeons, of 
people on the other, the higher end of the the military spectrum, the the hierarchy, and to have the perspective of somebody who not only was directly affected, but who was a day to day soldier in the fight against the flu is is kind of priceless. Yeah, it, it really is. And I have some I have a story about nurses as well. A Frances Pohl from Chicago had come out as she she joined to be a nurse and so she came she was assigned to Camp Ontario, which is in New York, and she died within a few weeks of leaving Chicago from the from pneumonia due to the flu. And one of the people who worked with her wrote, During the terrible epidemic, which was very severe in Camp Ontario, Miss Poole did not spare herself, and though she had a severe cold and was urged not to go on duty, she saw the extreme need of the boys and, like a brave soldier, fought the fight until she fell, a victim of pneumonia. And her story is unfortunately not very rare. It is very common. There were many, many nurses who went and within a few weeks of going had fallen either fallen ill and many of them died as, as they were exposed to the flu, as they were helping to take care of all of the people in the, the army who were sick. Yeah. I think between the demands of the Western front and the, the, the nurses and physicians who would have been sent overseas and then just the incredible toll that the flu took on caregivers, it must've just decimated the ranks of any sort of medical personnel in the affected areas. You know, it really was. And actually the stories that I'm more familiar with are the people that stayed here because there also was a huge demand for nurses and doctors in the U S not just on the Western front. And I think that they also had a lot of the same toll in terms of working very, very long hours under poor conditions and not really having any way to defend themselves against getting the flu. They, they had, the gauze masks, but they weren't that effective. They um, were not fine enough to really keep out the, the flu virus. And there's another story of Louise Evelyn Byrne, who was excited to enlist as a nurse in the Army Nurse Corps. And she enlisted on September 30th, and she died of pneumonia October 14th. So it's just so common that so many of them died. I was actually reading a book by John Barry called The Great Influenza, and he wrote just as an example, and I don't know that there was anything special about this day, but he was writing about how terrible it was in Philadelphia. And he said on September 17th, five doctors and 14 nurses at a civilian hospital in Philadelphia collapsed. They had exhibited no prior symptoms. And I, I don't know if they survived or died, but just, you know, in a given day that 19 of your caretakers had collapsed, at least, were unable to f- perform their duties because they had been performing their duties so well. I just took such a big toll. I've, he also gives stories that sometimes nurses that went to visit different households and to try to, you know, so instead of bringing everyone to the hospital, the nurses would go and care for people in their homes, that there were stories that he wrote where some of them were actually held, almost kidnapped, he called them, because they needed someone to care for their family. So the nurse came and they just would not let her go. And there, the doctors, there were also many, many of them that died in the Journal of the American Medical Association they have columns at the end dedicated to obituaries. And during the height of the epidemic, they had pages and pages of obituaries, small obituaries. So probably like a hundred obituaries in a single edition. And most of them died of influenza or pneumonia, which we could relate, call that likely a flu related death. And this would be both, many of them were in the U S but also many of them were overseas that died. 
So do you have stories, family stories about the flu affecting either your family or, or folks around I your do. family? I didn't think that I did when I was starting this talk and was trying to collect stories. I'd never heard anyone in my family talk about the 1918 flu. And in my family, we like to share stories. We pass down lots of stories. And so my mom was here, this is about a year ago, and she's from this little tiny town called Verdon, New Mexico, a town of about 200 people. And she was sure that the flu hadn't hit there because she'd never heard about it. Well, her father had helped put together a book about the history of Verdun, and I randomly opened it to a page, which I haven't been able to find again, but I know it's there. <laughs> I randomly opened it to a page, and it said that Granny so and so, who was the person who take care, who was the person who took care of anyone who got sick, that she nursed them all back to health, or at least nursed them through the the nineteen eighteen flu epidemic. So not only was it in the town, but it was. In a town uh, history collected yes. by your grandfather. Yes. Although I didn't Perfect. talk, unfortunately, I should have talked to him, but I, I didn't talk to him about it, unfortunately, until I, I just asked him about it. He's 97 now, and I was talking with him yesterday and asked him about it, but his memory is going, so he didn't really remember. But I later found his sister, who was older than him, in her life history, she wrote that when the the epidemic came to Verdun, New Mexico. She was two months old, so she's relying on what people have told her. But she was very, very sick. And her father, so my great-grandfather, was also very, very sick. And I'm really glad that he survived because my grandfather wasn't born until a few years later. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I wouldn't yeah. care if he hadn't survived. And then on, a, on my father's side, same thing. Hadn't heard of any stories. And I just happened to be poking through some of the, the life stories that we'd collected about various ancestors. And my great aunt wrote about her mother, who's my great grandmother, and just kind of, it was just a sentence, it was just in passing, that she had had severe loss, she had severe hearing loss as a result of the, the flu that she got in 1918. And my father hadn't known that. He, of course, she was one of his, she was, he was very close to her, and he knew that she had severe hearing loss, but she was old when he was a little kid, and, you know, he thought that all grandmas had hearing loss. So he never right. connected that it was actually due to the 1918 flu until I found this among his papers, ironically, but among his papers, I, I found this and shared it with him. So I think that really does show that almost all of us will have some sort of story. And whether we know it or whether it's been passed down in a way that we can tell it had to do with the flu, just so much of human population was affected that probably there's a story yes. close to it. And I actually, I saw that with one of my friends who's a professional genealogist and has done a lot of research on her family. And I was talking with her a couple of weeks ago and I asked her if she had a 1918 flu story. She said, no, but wait, my grandfather or my, yeah, my grandfather was in the military and I have the letters he wrote to my grandmother. Let's go through them. So she and I went through them together, which was really interesting. And he, this was during the height of the flu epidemic. He was stationed in Philadelphia and New York in September and October. And instead of writing about how bad it was, he had the time of his life. He was writing to who would become his future wife, but at the time they were just friends. They had both actually broken off engagements and were kind of helping each other through the post-breakup. And he wrote to her about all of the dates he was going on and the dances he was going to. You would have no idea. Uh, according to his letters, that there was a flu epidemic going on, except for in one letter he wrote, it was the end of October, he was in New York, and he wrote to her that he needed to come home, just um, just for fun, like it wasn't a medical, but he just had to come home for a fun reason, but there was a quarantine going on in New York. He was pretty sure it would be over by the weekend when he wanted to come home, and he didn't quite say that he would run it, but he gave the impression that if it wasn't, he would come anyway and break the quarantine. 
And if he was stationed in New York and Philadelphia during the, the height of the flu and having a grand old time, it, it's funny because I, I always hear of Philadelphia as being one of the most heavily hit cities. Um, so Boston's in sort of a second tier. It was badly affected, yes, but it, it was Philadelphia, Baltimore, yeah, were some of the you worst. Wouldn't know it. Actually, it was interesting that there, the only mention of the flu, and it was something that we read into, is that at some point when he was in New York, he had a really, really high fever. And he was down for the count for a couple of, so he, he was, he got the fever on a Saturday afternoon. He slept for a little bit, called his dad and said, Hey, I have the, I have a fever. He never said he had the flu, but his dad was like on the next train up there. So you know that his dad was worried that his son might have come down with the flu. It ended up, it wasn't the flu. It was just like a a 24 hour bug, but you could see that his dad was worried even if he wasn't. Yeah. It probably has something to do with the invincibility of a young man, the mental. The believed invincibility of a young man. I'm glad somebody had a good time in the fall of 1918, because I think for much of humanity, it was yeah, not you know, a good time. Yeah, there was time. one other person in the military. I work with the partner of his grandson. And so she's come across his papers, and she's become really interested in these letters. His name is Milan Piper. And this is a little bit later. It was in February 1919. He was in France, but he, he's from New Hampshire, so he was with the U.S. Army. And he wrote that, I had a touch of the flu, but I kept up all the time on sheer grit, and I think by keeping up and drilling with the boys that I fooled them all to the extent that the hospital got cheated out of another patient. And he continued that germs can't kill me on foreign soil, for I'm going to croak in the good old USA. And he, he did come back. So he had the flu, but he actually, I think, in another letter, he talked how he had some sort of gastro disease or ailment for about three weeks, which he didn't attribute to the flu, and it may not have been the flu. But I, I love these two boys that were just so cheeky of... You know, I'm, I fooled them, I fooled the hospital, and I'm going to break the quarantine, and I'm good. Yes. <laughs> Very yes. lucky young men. So as long as we're talking about experiences in the military, I know you mentioned one particular troop ship that was affected in a very unusual yes. way by the flu. So this was the USS America. It was a transport ship, so it would take men back and forth across the Atlantic. And so they had a pickup of men in September in Boston, the the worst possible time to be picking up men to take them across the ocean to Europe. And so they picked them up, they took them to Europe, and many of them were sick and many of them died. Then they came back to the U.S. And because... Back to Boston. Not to Boston. It was, I believe it was New Jersey. Yes. It was somewhere further south. I believe it was New Jersey, but I'm, I'm not remembering offhand. And... When they were there in port, they decided to fumigate the ship so that they could get you know rid of all these germs that were causing the flu. And so they, the chemicals that they used were very strong smelling. And so they opened up all of the doors, including some on the, the lower part of the ship. And now, before I before you go on, what did they think they were accomplishing by fumigating the ship? Do you think they really thought that they could get? They didn't know that it was a virus. They thought that it was a bacteria. But whatever it was, they thought that they were would be able to get rid of whatever was causing people to get sick. So they could clear the ship of illness. It was their goal. So that when they brought new men on, there would be nothing to infect them. All right. So they're putting something very strongly smelling that's going to go throughout the ship. So they open up all the doors. And then what happens? And then they leave them open overnight. And then I don't know if they just forgot to close them or if the tide came up sooner than expected, but something happened and the ship started to sink as water was pouring in through these open doors. And there were, I'm not sure how many men were on board, but there were 
most whoever was on board mostly made it off. About four or five men died oh. because they couldn't. Yes, because they couldn't get off in time. But most of them were able to get out. And uh, but the ship was was lost basically, at least for a while, due to trying to fumigate after the flu. Yeah, I'm not much of a sailor, but I'm pretty sure you should shut the door before the water comes. Yeah, you know, I would think so too. I'm not a sailor either, but it seems common sense. As we start to wind down, is there anything that you've come across that really encapsulates what daily life was like during this really grim time in not only American history or Boston history, but just the history of the world? You know, I found this great quote by Susanna Turner, and this was captured in the late 1980s or early 1990s. And so she was remembering what she felt and remembered as a young child during the 1918 flu epidemic. And she said, the fear in the hearts of the people just withered with them. They were afraid to go out, afraid to do anything. You just lived from day to day, did what you had to do, and not think about the future. And I think in some ways that encapsulates that there was this fear of the unknown and, oh no, was it going to strike me? And how could I, how can I keep my family and me safe? And the best way to do that is just to stay inside and not, not do anything. And so there was that fear in many, that she remembers it vividly, you know, decades later of what it was like and the fear that was instilled of, how, of trying not to get the flu by staying inside and basically doing nothing and that life pretty much shut down. This, this episode will be released essentially to mark the hundredth anniversary of the, the flu turning deadly in Boston. And there's a, I think a lot of media, there are books coming out. There are other podcasts and TV shows about the centennial of the flu. But I feel like for most of my life, we didn't hear about the Spanish flu, except maybe sort of a, a subtopic in a chapter in high school history about World War One. Why do you think for something that affected so many people around the world, we haven't heard as much about it? That's a really good question, because if you heard it in high school, you have one up on me. I didn't hear about it until much more recently. And it, even when I started thinking about it, it was just something that happened that wasn't that big of a deal, right? Until I started looking into it. And a lot of people have written about it and have given different opinions, including that for some people it was just too horrible to think about, even though more people died in the Spanish flu epidemic than in combat deaths in World War I, World War II, and the Korean War combined. That the, There was just something about this that was inherently really personal and too overwhelming. And I think that Laura Spinney, in her book, Paul Ryder, writes really well. She says, The Spanish flu is remembered personally, not collectively. Not as a historical disaster, but as millions of discrete private tragedies. And be the reason that that really resonated with me is because I am trying to tell the stories, not just of, of the big, you know, the president and other people making big decisions and leaders in the military and city department heads. But I want to know what are those discrete private tragedies that people saw in everyday lives. And I think that is really what is driving it home for me and making me really appreciate the the effect and the impact of this epidemic. Well, Lori Lynn, I appreciate you taking the time to, to share these personal stories with our listeners so that the 1918 flu epidemic is more than just a set of statistics and sort of the, the great sweep of history, but we see how it really affects people of Boston, of the U.S., and, and people around the world. Before we let you go, is there a place where people can find out more about you or your work online? 
Yes, I have a website called bridgingthepast.com, and on there I have a blog, and also many of the talks that I give are listed on there. Well, Lori Lynn Price, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. To learn more about the 1918 flu pandemic, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 095. We'll have a link to the Boston Health Department's 1919 annual report, links to historical and medical articles about the epidemic, and pictures that show what Commonwealth Pier looked like at the time of the outbreak there, and the open-air tent city hospitals that were erected around Boston. And of course, we'll have links to information about this week's featured historic site and upcoming event. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk more about Boston in September 1918 with author Skip Desjardins.